Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wire tripped? No? A virgin brain. Well, we're gonna start you off right. This isn't like TV only better. This is life. Yeah, it's a piece of somebody's life. Pure and uncut. Straight from the cerebral cortex. We all feel better. In conclusion, if you find yourself falling asleep, having a dream child in the middle of a nightmare, while you're trying to wake up when you're being chased by a guy with razors on his fingers, and you don't know it's a new nightmare, and then you got Jason, he's got an axe, got Kelly Rowland, she's not saying, nightmare baby, nightmare baby, nightmare baby. Nightmare, baby. Flow. H-Y. Once upon a time on a Super Bowl night, two guys from BK brought the points to life. Gave you some previews and some laughs. Was it no big thing? No one thought it would last. Then one started growling at the mention of a chick. The other guy would lose it every time he got pissed. Next thing you know, they got a good fan base. So they said, what the hell, let's continue to pace. No stone uncovered, they will take on a topic. Might bring on a guest, and together they rock it. Cause they're in like Flint, two mices are cool. If you don't know the beautiful one, they'll take you to school. I'm talking about Tom, DJ, and Derek Ferguson. The best podcast out, hands down, it's set. So in the tub, in the car, if you're chilling in the park. Welcome to another show of Better in the Dark. Butcher shop, 2 o'clock, dude, that's a phone. Why is this running? You're there. You're doing it, seeing it, hearing, hearing it. You're feeling it. It's about the stuff that you can't have, right? Those people back there, they wasn't normal. Normal folks, they don't spit out bullets when you shoot them. I can make it happen. I can get you anything you want. You just have to talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. I'm your priest. I'm your shrink. I'm your main connection to the switchboard of souls. I'm the magic man. And until we get back in touch with you... Go watch that movie! Right, Devin? Go watch that movie! Now, all throughout... 2011, we started, I guess, what we're now going to call the Hall of Great Grit Men, where throughout last year we did a number of episodes just talking about directors and actors that we admire, not examining them in the way that we would examine them in a director's court or in BITD autopsy. Just right. We've reached a momentous occasion here. We're about to induct our Wo- first women's. Woman. Our first woman's folks. So this is a great, great woman's. Woman's. Woman. Woman. Parentheses around it. Yes. Oh, uh, not a great, great man, but a great, great woman. Oh, yes. In particularly, it's, it's the first female director to ever win the Academy Award right. for Best Director. As somebody who had followed her career from the very, very, very embryonic stages, but I was so pleased. This woman has had an exceptional career in that she is a female director and she's very much a woman. Let's oh, oh, yeah. First of all, let's say she's very, there's no doubt about this. Oh, woman. yeah. But she has made a career directing movies, tough action movies, that you would more attribute to a male director. And as a matter of fact, a couple of her movies have actually become cult movies among guys. I was talking to you earlier this week about the fact that news just came down the pike that Kurt Wimmer, mm-hmm. the guy who directed Equilibrium, mm-hmm. and the guy who wrote Salt, has just written a remake of what most people consider to be her most iconic film until the most recent film that she did. Mm-hmm. Which is Point Break Right Yeah That's a movie Most guys I know Believe it or not I have never seen Point Break And when I say this other guy They said, Man are you crazy You've never seen Point Break What can I tell you I've never seen it And as a matter of fact I even know guys That when I tell them well, you know, This is the woman That directed yeah. it They don't believe It's a yeah. woman Also we should mention That this is also The first person We were entering Into the Hall of Great Great Men Who I've actually met Oh you've met her I've met her Yeah You I, lucky bastard I attended the screening of Near Dark That marked its induction into the Museum of Modern Art's permanent film collection And she was there For those of you who wonder I can now attest with my own eyes mm-hmm. That she is just as amazingly gorgeous in real life As she looks like in, in pictures. pictures Yeah, We are of course talking about the great, great woman, Catherine Bigelow. I'm so glad she's finally gotten the acclaim that I think she's deserved as far back as 1982. 
Let's face it, she has a resume that any director, male yeah. or female, mm -hmm. would be proud of. Even though there are a couple of movies of hers I haven't seen. Like, yeah. I, I was trying to find some of the movies that I haven't seen on Netflix last yeah. night, but I've only got streaming and they're only available on right. TV. I did not know she directed the one with Harrison Ford, K-9 The Widowmaker. The yeah. Widowmaker, yeah. Which wasn't a financial right. success, but it was critically... You look at some of the actors that she's worked with yeah. in her time. Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze. Keanu Reeves. Gary Busey. One of the very, very early roles of Willem Dafoe. Yeah, Willem Dafoe. Um, and uh, Jamie Lee, which is her first film. Mm -hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm -hmm. uh, Angela, Ray Fiennes. Angela Bassett. Angela Bassett. Tom Noonan. Mm -hmm. The thing is, of course, many of these people she got them before they become the people we know. Right. And this stretches up to today with The Hurt Locker, where she was the person who looked at Jeremy Renner and said, that's a movie star. And now look at him. He's freaking Hawkeye. Yeah, he's going to be in the Tom Cruise movie that's coming mm -hmm. out this month, as a matter of fact. Ghost Protocol, yep. the latest installment in the Mission Impossible series. Mm -hmm. But most of us who follow that stuff, we're waiting for him to be in the Avengers movie. Yeah. That's going to be coming out next year. I guess we should start like we always do with these things, with a little bit of a bio. Yes, sir. Bigelow was born in San Carlos, California in 1952. So she's going to be 60 this year. Damn good looking. Damn, yay. <laughs> she's the only child of a paint factory manager and a librarian. Now, her original goal in life was not to be a filmmaker, but to be a painter. Really? And in fact, that's where most of her education is. She was enrolled in the San Francisco Art Institute in the fall of 1970 and received her Bachelor of Fine Arts in December of 72. While enrolled at SFAI, she was accepted into the Whitney Museum of Arts Independent Study Scholarship Program in New York. A little bit later, she entered the graduate film program at Columbia University, mm -hmm. uh, where she studied theory and criticism and earned her master's degree. Her professors included Vito Acondi, Sylvia Lontringer, and Susan Sontag. And she worked with the Art and Language Collective and noted conceptualist Lawrence Weiner. Didn't he do some modeling at some point in her career? She modeled for The Gap. So... In 1984. You remember there was that whole series where they would put these up-and-coming artists and actors and stuff and have the model for Gap ads and she was one of them. So what we're looking at here is a woman who is just about a near perfect combination of beauty, talent, and brains. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify that. Full well, package. Which is why, why I out the modeling Which thing. is why I contend that somebody should go to James Cameron's uh, house we, under the sea every go, day and kick him in the ass. Why? For throwing her over for Linda Hamilton. Yeah, but Linda Hamilton... Is oh, Linda Hamilton a no, painter? No, some folks, before we started this, we were having this argument where my contention was that if he threw her over for, say, like, Nancy Grace, yes, <laughs> kick him in the ass. But Linda Hamilton is not a trade-up, but it's sideways. I think I mean? it's a slight trade-down. Okay, well, you're entitled. If it had been Nancy Grace or, I don't know, Mom's Mabel, yeah, okay, well, you look at what were you thinking, dude, but Linda Hamilton? Okay. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to tell you what's even worse than that. I would kick Steven Spielberg in the ass for divorcing, what's the name for uh, Kate Capshaw? Amy Irving? Yeah, Amy Irving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, okay, and that's a, yeah, he traded down. Amy yeah. Irving, one of those people who should be the spokespeople for Jews are hot. Yes. Yes. You know, her and Sarah Silverman and Alison Rosen. Jewish chicks are hot. That's right. <laughs> They are. I know, but I'm just... I've been, I've been saying that ever since I was 12 yeah. years old. <laughs> Trading Kate Capshaw for Amy Murray, that's a trade down. Linda Hamilton, eh, I can't go with you on that. Does Linda Hamilton know how to paint? No, but I'm pretty damn sure she knows how to do a few other things that make up for it. <laughs> Linda Hamilton likes to fuck. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure she knows a few other things that can make up for that. Arbitrary Blade Braxton reference just flew in there. Her first film was, of course, a student film in 78, which is called The Setup. Okay. It portrays two men fighting each other as the semioticians Sylvia Lotrenger and Marshall Blonsky deconstruct the images in voiceover. All right. Her first theatrical film. Right was The Loveless, which I made reference to in our Sam Peckinpah episode as being like a biker movie that Peckinpah would have made. Yeah, well, it, it's a biker movie. Yeah. I've never seen it, but from what I've read of it, this is the type of movie that you would not be expecting yeah. a female to make. Folks, if that sounds sexist, yeah. I'm sorry, but yeah, it is what it is. I mean, really, if you came to me and you said that well, but this movie was directed by a woman, it really, it for was? proof, look at how many other women have directed action. 
Not a lot. Well, exactly. This is what I'm saying. You don't see a lot of women directing. Yeah. You know who she reminds me of a lot, who? actually, in terms of her career-wise? Ida Lupino. Who, who also is a great, great woman. Who was a female director who directed film noir. Right. She directed thrillers. She directed murder mysteries. She did not direct romantic comedy. Because the thing is, is that you look at most female directors today. Mm-hmm. And you look at their CVs, and you're right. It's all comedies or heartwarming dramas. Family dramas, yeah, romance. And, and, and quite frankly. You know, psychological, yeah. or they do heavy character pieces. Yeah. Mostly dealing more with character than with plot or mm-hmm. with story. They're more concerned with getting in the head. I can think of only two other female directors who seem more interested in genre filmmaking. Mm. And oddly enough, both of them are named Mary. One is Mary Lambert. Okay. Okay, so, actually, I can think of three. Good choice. Mary Lambert, right. who Mary Lambert did the Pet Cemetery movies. Yeah. And did a couple other horror movies. Rachel Talele was a protege of, I think it was Wes Craven. I think she did the last of the original cycle Freddy movies. Okay. Freddy's Dead. And she did Ghost in the Machine and a couple other things. And Mary Heron. Who was the one who did American Psycho? Oh, okay. Those are the only three female directors I can think of who are more interested in genre filmmaking. But in all three of these cases, Bigelow was there first. And I don't really think any of them have had a career that have stood out as much as Bigelow. Certainly none of them have won the awards. Because if you go on her Wikipedia page and you look at the awards, this chick has won. Yeah. If there's an award out there, she's won it. Let's just put it that way. With good reason, because her movies are so, at least the ones I've seen, mm-hmm. are so well-constructed is so well put together that literally she's one of the filmmakers once you start watching them it's impossible to stop at least for me also if you you didn't know that she was a painter before she became a filmmaker it's Mm. very obvious from looking at her films you look at something like Near Dark the way that she almost fetishizes the way light comes into a room throughout that film like that whole scene where they're sleeping and the cops come looking for them they start shooting out the window or a sequence I know that Michael Bailey and I have talked about the opening of Strange Days Mm -hmm. that long one tracking shot along New Year's Eve in 1999. There's a definite attention to detail in her films that you don't get in an average director. Well, there are shots in Strange Days and Near Dark. And I'm serious. And again, this goes back to her background as a painter, I suppose. You could take that shot. You can put it in a frame and hang it up in your house. You can look at it until it's framed as if it were some kind of classical type of painting. You look at you say, wow. Well, the whole reason we didn't... And she's not afraid to let the camera linger on an image. Right. And let you take it in. The opening shot in Near Dark, which is the mosquito biting Adrian Pazdar. The way it just kind of like focuses in on that and then kind of slowly goes out. The reason, by the way, we never got a sequel to Near Dark... Because she wanted to do it, and so mm-hmm. did Lance Hendrickson, is because she had a very clear, discreet image mm-hmm. that she wanted to start the film with, and they could not find a way to pull it off. Right. Which is, she wanted to start the film with a barn. Mm-hmm. at night and there's some sort of really horrible noise going on in the barn mm-hmm. and out of the barn comes a horse and the horse has been set on fire okay and they could not find a way to do it practically and safely well this was before we had cgi exactly course, so know, had, that's what that reminds me of alfred hitchcock there was one scene that he always said he had <laughs> wanted to do for years but he couldn't figure out a way how to do it he wanted to do a scene where the characters are on a boat Mm-hmm. And the boat is sinking, and he wanted to have a glass of water. And the way that the water in the glass was tilting, the yep. audience would know that the boat was sinking, but the people in the scene wouldn't know. But he could never figure yeah. it out. Because how do you have a boat sinking without the yeah. people knowing that he's sinking? Uh, as a matter of fact, I saw a movie not too long ago where they had a scene where bulls were set on fire, 13 yeah. assassins. Mm-hmm. And that was done with CGI. Yeah. Near Dark was done back in the 80s. Right? 1987. Right after she married James Cameron. I remember seeing that movie on... Where? Very, 42nd, 42nd Street. Street. Yep. Very low budget. You get the impression that it was one of these things where she pulled the Corman. Yeah. And a lot of the people in that film are people who were in Aliens, or then-husbands, mm-hmm. film. Right. Yeah. Jeanette Goldstein, Goldstein, Bill Paxton, Bill Lance Paxton, Hendrickson. who was very hot at the time. Yeah. Bill Paxton, who was very hot at the time. Lance yeah. Hendrickson. Mm-hmm. And it was also the first collaboration she did with somebody that she did a couple of films with, who I think is an interesting writer, not so much an interesting director. He's not a great director, because he went on to become a writer-director, and his product went in the toilet. Eric Redd. Ah, uh, Yeah. 
Eric Wren, he was just a pure writer writing with Bigelow on mm-hmm. this and uh, uh, Strange Eight. Didn't they do Strange Eight? Uh, no, they did Near Dark. They did Blue Steel. Uh, Blue Steel. That's okay. That's what I was thinking. And I think that's it. But that's the Jamie Lee Curtis cop movie. Yes, where Jamie Ron, Lee, Ron Silver stole. Jamie her. Lee Curtis is a rookie cop. Mm-hmm. She loses her gun. The gun is picked up by Ron Silver, who is a mm-hmm. psychopathic mm-hmm. stockbroker of all things, and decides to use the gun to go on a serial killing spree. Him being a psychopathic stockbroker may have seemed like a laugh <laughs> back then. Yeah. Nobody's laughing now with the yeah. current state of the economy. But yeah, didn't Catherine Bigelow take a lot of heat? Because I seem to remember that a lot of people, because she made these movies, and Near Dark was a smash hit. Yeah. It made a lot of well, money. Well, actually, Near Dark, it was one of those movies where it was coming out at the height of the price point of VHS coming down low enough that mm-hmm. you could buy a movie and own it. Right. It was trapped between the double-edged sword mm-hmm. when it came out of Lost Boys and Fright Night. Personally, I always felt that anybody who was a Lost Boys fan deserved to be beat up. Yeah, Lost Boys, that's one of those movies that I never understood the thing. And, and oh, it's, oh, it's a cult classic. Well, no, it's not. It's not even a very good movie. No, it's not. And Fright Night is another movie. That's why I was not hot to go see the recent remake. Well, see, I like Fright Night even though it did not age at all well. Fright Night is one of those movies that I didn't dislike it, but I didn't like it either. I've seen it maybe about like twice, and if it comes on now, maybe if I'm doing something down here, if I'm doing laundry, Mm -hmm. or if I'm on my computer doing, I'll have it on for background noise, but I won't get up and sit down and watch it like I would if Near Dark is on. Now, Near Dark is on, I get up out of this chair and go to my TV watching chair. What happened was, everybody was watching those films. This film came in, it really didn't make a lot of money in the box office, but Boy, did it make money in VHS, in rentals, and in sell-through. Now, didn't Catherine Bigelow go through a period after this and when she was doing Strange Days because, as you say, mm-hmm. her movies weren't exactly burning up the box office. There was a lot of rumors right attributing her continuing to make yeah. movies to the fact she was married to James Cameron, yeah. who, of course, everything he made made a billion dollars. <laughs> well, you have these three films that came out very quickly, one right after the other. You had Near Dark in 87, Blue Steel in 90, and Point Break in 91. Right. Then you have a break of about four years. So this was during the period where he, she was, in fact, married to. Right. Around 91 is when Cameron starts thinking... Because apparently James Cameron is a serial marrier. Correct me if I'm wrong. He seems to always, like, marry somebody from his next production. Yeah. And that four years is during the time when Cameron decides, I'm going to divorce you and I'm going to get with the man. Get them. with her, yeah. So, yeah, I could see that. There have been reports that the marriage was never quite comfortable. They're two filmmakers. Which means that even when they're working on one movie, they're in pre-production for their next yeah. movie. It's hard enough to maintain a marriage under the best of circumstances. Yeah. Much less being two directors that are trying to... But to be fair, during thing. that period, she wasn't entirely out of the business. She and was, didn't they do Strange Days after they got divorced? Yes. She apparently got the script, mm-hmm. and he did agree to co-produce it. Okay. To be fair, during that four-year period, she did do some television. Right. She was one of the directors handpicked by Oliver Stone to bring Wild Palms to television. Ah, the classic Wild Palms. One day we got to do an episode about that. I don't think so. <laughs> I thought it was classic. It was a weird... It, well, it, it was. was, it was it, okay. Nobody knew what to make of Wild Palms, but ABC wanted another Twin Peaks. Okay, let me go back and tell you a little story about... Wild Palms started out as a comic strip. A comic strip, right. In the back of Details Magazine, mm-hmm. which was tentatively, supposedly, a, a semi-autobiographical tale of the person who did the comic strip. Right. About his experiences coming to L.A. I remember reading this comic strip because I was subscribed to Details Magazine for a long time. Oh, okay. I remember reading this and not knowing what the fuck this guy was talking about. Well, it was the same thing with the TV show, which apparently... Had nothing to yes, do with the comic strip. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Oliver Stone pulled the Chris Carter. Yeah. And created his own story around this and then handpicked... I forget, but there were three directors that he handpicked to direct individual episodes of this miniseries that ABC was hoping would become another hit another a la twi- Twin Peaks. Another Twin Peaks, yeah. Also, she's directed a couple of episodes of one of your favorite old TV shows, Homicide Life on the Street. Uh, yeah, I remember seeing her name on a couple mm-hmm. of those episodes. Until I saw The Wire. To me, that yeah. was the best cop show on TV, Homicide. It's funny, because I remember during that four-year period, I was despairing of ever seeing another movie by her again. I have been 
a big fan of her since seeing Near Dark back in yeah, seven. Yeah. Went back and found The Loveless, watched that, and watched every one of her movies in the theaters. I would love for anybody, and I, and I firmly believe that anybody is, that wants to do a vampire movie, there are a number of vampire movies I would make them sit mm-hmm. down and watch, and this is at the top of the list. You want to make a vampire movie? Here's how you do it. Because she did it, and she kicked major ass with that movie. Well, I mean, part of it is just that script she did with Red. Mm-hmm. There's just so many quotable lines in that film. They managed to convey a lot of information very, very briefly. Like, for example, when Adrian Pazdar is first taken in by the vampires, and he's like, how old are you? Let's say I fought for the South. Yeah, we yeah. We lost. Okay, right there. That is such a brilliantly written line, because it tells you so much. Yeah. In so few words. This, along with Strange Days, they get juggled in my mind, as which is my yeah. favorite. Because if I'm watching Near Dark, that's my favorite Catherine yeah. Bigelow movie. If I'm watching Strange Days, that's my favorite yeah. Catherine Catherine Bigelow movie. <laughs> and you know what else I love about Bigelow? This is something we were talking about when we were talking about Oliver Stone, about fingerprints. Catherine Bigelow's fingerprints are there, but they're always very, very light. And in fact, yeah. the interesting thing is, you look at this run that we're talking about right now, Near Dark does not look like Blue Steel, which is way does not look like Point Break, no. which does not look like Strange Days. Right. Even though each one is recognizably a Bigelow film, they are unique discrete objects in and of themselves. The thing about Strange Days I will always remember to the end of my day is the scene of Ray Fiennes putting on the headset and reliving the death of his girlfriend. Yeah, but that whole concept, they have the thing with the guy, because the whole premise, of, if you've never seen the movie, folks, the premise of things that Ralph Fiennes, he was ex-cop, Matter of fact, his partner used to be Angela Bassett, who right. now is working as a freelance bodyguard. Uh, but he used to be a cop, a crooked cop, we gather. And he left, and now he's a drug peddler, but a drug peddler in not the conventional sense, in that in this future world, there's a way that you can record people's thoughts, and then you can play them back on this device. So you have guys who do kinky things, like they play back the memories of a girl having sex, or then you have people that go out and commit robberies, and then they sell these memories to mm-hmm. other people who are too scared to go out and do robberies themselves. Right. As a matter of fact, the opening of the movie is a tour de force sequence, mm-hmm. where we see a robbery from the point of view of somebody who is reliving somebody else's memory right. of doing the robbery. So what happens is that there's a serial killer going around, and what he's doing is is really sadistic, in that he's rewired the device that plays back memory so that the person that he's killing sees their own killing through the eyes right. of the person that's killing them. <laughs> Did you get that? And it's really some creepy shit, that scene where he's got to relive the... Because, because that's how oh, he gets man. involved with it, because yeah. his ex-girlfriend, played by Juliette Lewis... Who should never sing again. Just like you and me, she's not going to stop. Yeah, but we know what we're doing. And don't get me wrong, Juliette Lewis... I think is nuclear hot. I think she's, she's a, one of those I, I weird she, women. We're, like we're talking about Tilda Swinton. Yeah, where Juliette Lewis is not. I don't think in anybody's books attractive. Right, but there is something about yeah. the whole package that, as you put it, if she walks up to you and said, "You want to hit this?" <laughs> yeah, let's go. Yeah. And I think she's a wonderful actress. I knew she was an actress Mm -hmm. from the time I saw her in the Martin Scorsese remake of Cape Fear. Yes. However, somebody lied to that chick and told her she could sing. (laughs) That's why she doesn't appear in movies anymore, because she's touring all the time with her band, The Lex. Oh, God. I love you, Juliet, but... Babe, I don't know who told you you can say. And apparently somebody told you, yeah, man, you can rock hard. You get up on the stage and scream hey, is what you but do. they got our recording deal. Hey, so. listen, what do I know? What was the point that we were trying to make? We, we were talking about we race fines. We got, we we got distracted Julia by Lewis. Julia Lewis's hotness. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so he gets involved in this, and right. he gets his ex-partner, played wonderfully by Angela Bassett. It would have been a point. Yeah. He must have not been a very good cop when he was a cop, yeah. because he gets his ass kicked all throughout the movie, <laughs> and Angela Bassett has to keep saving his ass continually. Right. She watches his back, and she becomes like his bodyguard right. as he's trying to find out who's running the Around doing all this killing, and this is set in the backdrop. Of course, it's close to New Year's Eve at right. the turn of the century. Of the century. Think, yeah, which of course makes it a period piece now. Yeah, <laughs> we keep cutting back to this big concert 
by the punk band Skunk Anise throughout the film. I get the impression that the producers really thought we're going to be the next big thing, but it ended up not going anywhere. Well, this movie was supposed to be the next big science fiction classic, because I remember the promotion that they were doing for this movie. They were selling it as if this was going to be the next 2001, or... This is Blade Runner. Or Blade Runner, right, or the next Blade Runner. It's definitely in the same sort of ballpark as Blade Runner, in that it is a pure cyber... In fact, it's more pure cyberpunk than a number of these movies that were based on cyberpunk. Right. I'm looking at you, Johnny Mnemonic. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah. <laughs> Matter of fact, Tom and I were talking about we're going to do an episode on horror movies that masquerade mm-hmm. as science fiction. We should do a movie about science fiction movies that masquerade as science fiction. Yeah. <laughs> no, but this is cyberpunk. It is legitimately because if you take out that element with the device where you can replace yeah. memory, you don't have a story. There's elements of 40s film noir, yeah. detective fiction in this one. Much like there's elements of the Western in Near Dark. You can go Oh, there you go. It's not just a vampire movie. Right. It's also a western. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's another kind of gap between 95 and 2000 when her next film comes out. She does some more homicide, life on the street episodes. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, she does a big swerve, The Weight of Water, a relationship drama. Ah. In other words, a picture that women's directors are supposed to be doing. <laughs> and how did this one do? Uh, It was an art house film, so of course it went to the art houses. But then we get the one you were talking about, K-19, The Widowmaker. Ah, with Harrison Ford. During the whole period where we apparently had this whole big fetish about submarines, I think there was another submarine film out, wasn't it? Uh, The Hunt for Red October. Yeah, there was, wasn't there like, was it clear, not clear in person date, there was the one where they tried to recast Jack Ryan again as a Ben Affleck the same year? Mm, No. Here's the timeline, you had The Hunt for Red October which was the first Jack Ryan movie, which had Alec Baldwin playing Jack Ryan. What happened is that Harrison Ford actually took over the Jack Ryan role for For two more movies. For two more movies. Clear and Present Danger. and Patriot Games. Patriot Games. And then after that, they let the franchise cool for a while, and then that's when Ben Affleck took over. Some of all fears. Let's say about that. Yes, we were. Because that effectively killed the franchise. Although I hear that they are again planning to start up the Jack Ryan. Let me guess. They're going to remake Hunt for Red October. honestly don't know what they're going to do. And really, I'm not really all that interested. I like The Hunt for Red October. Clear Present Danger and Patriot Games. At that point in my life, I was Harrison Ford it out. So that was during the point in his career where Harrison Ford had decided he was going to do all of his acting with his finger. During that period, all of his films, he'd be doing this. Yeah, I mean, and they were all right movies. But yeah. I think I've seen Patriot Games maybe twice, which yeah. is probably the better one. The sum of all fears, I've seen that one, and I said, yeah, Ben Affleck, please leave the acting to your brother. <laughs> yeah, but and I've never seen K-19. K-19, neither did I. And it did not do well. And she kind of went underground again, although she surfaced in 2004 to direct an episode of the woefully underrated ABC TV series starred Carla Gugino mm-hmm. Karen Sisto. The one based on the uh, character that Jennifer Lopez played ah, in the Steve Soderbergh In film. the Steve Soderbergh movie with George Clooney. Right. Yeah. But when she came back, she came back. You ain't moving me from this spot anymore, mm-hmm. people. Because she came back with the Hurt Locker. Ah, yeah. Look at this list of all the awards. It was a movie, and I keep hate to repeat myself, but honestly, if you had shown me the movie and didn't tell me who was directing it, I would not have guessed because this is a very tough, uncompromising look at the Iraqi war and it's done not in the conventional way because we're seeing it through the eyes of a bomb squad. They Mm -hmm. have these squads because of course you have the insurgents that leave booby-trapped bombs all over the place Mm -hmm. and it's these guys' job to go in there. They're like the bomb. it's got this almost documentary feel to it. Right. And what happens is that in the first ten minutes of the movie, we have Guy Pierce who's the leader of this three-man squad, he gets killed right from the beginning. She does it in a realistic manner, and it's realistic because if you've seen, I don't know how many countless movies where people are running away from explosions, yeah. Yeah. they do this number, then they fall down, then they pick themselves up. Guy Pierce gets killed, and mind you, he's in body armor that's yeah. supposed to protect him from the explosion, and he still gets killed in the explosion. So you know that this is not going to be your run-of-the-mill movie, but it's different in that we are seeing these aren't your traditional soldiers that go out there and they're shooting. They're more watching out for the civilians who may be people. Like there's one part where there's a guy who has a cell phone, yeah. and they're screaming, "Shoot the guy with the cell phone! Shoot the guy!" And then you realize. Oh shit, that could be the guy that sets off the bomb. So after Guy Pierce buys it, they Mm -hmm. get a new commanding officer, played by Jeremy Renner. Right. The problem is, 
that this is a guy that actually gets off on putting mm-hmm. himself into dangerous situations. He goes into right. disarm a bomb and like he turns off his headset radio, which you're not supposed right. to do that. You're supposed to stay in constant contact. He takes risks he doesn't have to take, and this leads him into odds with other members of his squad. One of them who actually at one point contemplates killing him because he's scared that this guy's going to get right. killed. It's a tough, good war movie, and I'm convinced that it's hard to make movies about the Iraqi war. I can't really think of any Because it's so ambiguous, and the thing is, it's such an ambiguous period in our history, because there's so much about that can be construed as wrong. So many just very, very odd angles that can be taken. And I've seen a couple of movies about the Iraqi war, like... Palma did that one, did that found footage one. Which one was that one? I'm trying to remember what the name of it is. I know I saw the one with Matt Damon, the Greengrass movie. I hated that one. Green Zone. But this one I liked, and I think that if any movie is going to be looked at in 10 to 20 years as being the definitive Iraqi war movie, this has got to... Redacted. Okay. Redacted. It's a war movie, but the idea is it's Brian De Palma trying to do a found footage film. I don't think it's very good, but then again, I'm not very fond of it. Well, you're, De yeah, you're not a De Palma fan anyway. I also think that the problem was, okay, when the Vietnam War was going on, we didn't mm-hmm. make Vietnam War movies. It wasn't until after the war was over with, and we gave ourselves as a nation, and filmmakers gave themselves distance to look at it, and then try to figure out what it was through their film. Mm-hmm. We're making Iraqi War movies now while it's still going right. on, and it's the ambiguity of the whole conflict that is really hard to get a handle. I was listening to Chinchurka versus Punter mm-hmm. earlier this week, and they were talking about. Might have been Platoon. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. They were talking about how when you look at films about Vietnam that were made during the Vietnam War itself, they were very gung ho. Oh, it was First Blood. First Blood. That's okay. what they were talking about. Okay. They were making the point that when you look at these films that were made about Vietnam while Vietnam was still going on. Mm-hmm. American filmmakers are still doing the old World War II thing mm-hmm. of doing propaganda movies. Whereas once we're clear of it and we realize you know, all the crap that went down, the movies become a lot more ambiguous, a lot more... Right, that's when you get your Deer Hunter, yeah. you get your Apocalypse Now, you get your Hamburger Hill. You get yeah. those movies that are a little bit more ambiguous about what the war was all about. I don't think that that's the case. We've got to that point with the Iraqi war because we are making those movies as it's going on. It's like trying to grab right. smoke. Because this country is so polarized about it. That's why I give her credit for making a movie about a subject that is so polarizing well, and everybody liked it. The great thing about this movie is that it's not a movie about the war. It's a movie about this group yeah. of people who are trapped in this war. Right. She's not trying to make an issue out of the war or come right. down on one side or the other. It's about how do these three men react to the situation that they're in. Which is what I think all good drama, period, is supposed to be about. How did these characters get themselves in this situation and what do they do about it? So, yeah, and there's something about this guy, Renner. She looked at him and said, yeah, yeah. that guy's a star. And in this one, yeah, you can see why. <laughs> this is why I said, now they picked him to be Hawkeye. I may yeah. not have picked him to be it, but however mm-hmm. he does it, he's going to be good at it. And once again... This is not like Strange Days. It's not like any of the other films we just discussed. Mm -hmm. It is very much... I mean, this is the thing that always fascinates me about her. She made this comment... Let me get the quote for a second. Okay. I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about what my aptitude is, and I really think it's to explore and push the medium. It's not about breaking gender roles or genre traditions. Mm. And I think that's kind of what she's doing. She's not interested in a particular genre, which is something that you and I have complained about with a lot of directors who came out around the same time. She's interested in, I think, these individual stories, and maybe even it comes down to these individual images. As we talked about how she and Eric Red started writing the sequel for Near Dark because she had this image of a horse running from a barn Mm -hmm. that was on fire. You can kind of see Strange Days is defined by that first image, that first rolling tracking shot Mm -hmm. down the street while everything is going to mother effing hell. (laughs) Point Break is defined by the images of the four presidents Mm -hmm. coming in and robbing the bank or of Reeves and Swayze going out and tacking that big ass wave towards the end. I think it may start with the images. These are always characters. which is why the Hurt Locker works because it's about the characters. It's not about soldiers in a war. It's about soldiers. And I appreciate the fact, and I know I mentioned this in a previous episode, Mm -hmm. but 
one of the things I like about her is that, as you so accurately point out, she's done crime thrillers. Mm-hmm. She's done horror. She's done a war movie. She's done a chick flick, if you will. She's done a biker movie. She does movies in different genres, which to me is a throwback to those classic directors of the mm-hmm. 30s and 40s and 50s. Who did that? They would do a Western. And then after right. they finish the Western, they would do a musical. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they do a crime thriller. Or they do a comedy. That was, of course, because you know, they were still working in this old Hollywood system of the studios contracting with the studio, you stayed with the studio, the studio told you what to do. In a way, that's good that you get that training in a variety of movies so this way you can do everything. But now you got these directors that just do well, I just do this type of movie and then that's mm-hmm. it. After you've used up that bag of tricks, it's no wonder they don't have any careers because after you use yeah. up your bag of tricks in two or three movies, what do you do? Go do something else. We did that when we were doing the Zack Snyder thing. Yeah. That was our recommendation for him. Go do something else. Completely different. And I wonder maybe if part of the reason why she has the periods of no activity is because she's trying to figure out what's going to excite me this time. Exactly. And I think that you have to do that in any kind of creative thing, whether you're a musician, whether you're mm-hmm. a filmmaker, whether you're a writer, whether you're a painter. Once in a while, just say, let me do something just for the hell of it, just to see how it turns out and to see if I can do it. I keep threatening people. Me and Patricia were talking the other day and I said, if you keep on messing around me, I'm going to write that romance. I keep saying I'm going to do it. <laughs> She said, you write a romance, right? You have to write it where nobody pulls a gun, nobody dies, nobody's an alien. Nobody. Right. She said, I said, yeah, okay. I said, what, you don't think I can do it? She said, no, nah, I don't think you can do it. I said, oh, okay. I'm going to surprise you. I'll show you. Yeah. Well, I get to the sex scenes. You're going to regret that. <laughs> Her most recent project is the Osama Bin Laden picture, oh. which she had to stop and rewrite. Really? Yeah. Well, I can imagine. Because originally it was about the hunt for Osama Bin Laden, and then we had to go and find him. Scene. Catherine Bigelow. Oh, this is going to be so wonderful. Bring, bring, bring. Hello, Catherine Bigelow. <laughs> what? <laughs> What do you mean, they killed him? Who are they? (laughs) Son of a bitch! (laughs) Delete! (laughs) I'll get that as I went What do you mean, they killed him? Who are they? Oh, uh, by the way, I called up the Wild Palms page. Yes, sir. The other directors that were involved with this were Keith Gordon. Oh, okay. Phil Janelle mm-hmm. and Peter Hewitt. Catherine Bigelow directed episode three. Wild Palms, folks, the TV show that nobody, I don't care if you ask them. Jim Belushi was in that Yes. Years and Dana Delaney, who I know you really, 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 really Years really later, they did an interview with him, Jim mm-hmm. Belushi, and they asked him, what was the meaning behind that? He said, not one son of a bitch working on that production can tell you what that thing was about. <laughs> Those were his exact... He said, not one son of a bitch can tell you what it was about. It's funny because it's like, okay, remember how I was telling you how I couldn't figure out what it was about when I was reading the, right. the comic strip? Creator Bruce Wagner describes the comic strip that the miniseries is based on. I used the cartoon as a sort of surreal diary. It was dreamlike and hallucinatory. I put my friends in it. I put famous people in it. I didn't care about the story. It was a tone poem. Yeah. yeah I think I know what happened. Once again, and I know that you don't ascribe to this theory, but Oliver Stone looked at all the excitement around Twin Peaks and everybody talking about David Lynch, David David Lynch, David Lynch. And he's like, I'll show you. I'll out David Lynch you. Well, yeah, but you see this thing that that's a bad thing. I don't necessarily see it as you see something that, okay, as a writer, don't you read something and you say, well, shit, I can write better than that. Mm. Oh, see, now you're going to sit up here and lie. Go ahead. Go ahead, I dare you. <laughs> we come back to the idea of fingerprints. Okay. And how light a person's fingerprints are. Okay, I agree with I that. I like to think that when I see a bad issue of the Avenger and I write a better issue, every page is in screaming, look at me, look at how much better I am than that son of a bitch over there. Okay, I got you. I know you've looked at things and said I could do better than that, and I know for a fact that when I read your stuff, I mean, I see you because I've read enough of your stuff that I recognize your tropes and I recognize your... Right. But I don't see you going, I'm so much better than that son of a bitch. Well, that's true, even though I am so much better than that son of a bitch, Brendis, but uh, (laughs) but when it comes to adventure... In the case of Oliver Stone... He makes a big deal out of it. He makes it obvious. We come back to the fact that he puts himself in his own 
own yeah. miniseries boasting about how he was proven right all along. I gotcha. And that, okay, I'll go along with it. I think that a lot of times great art does come out yeah. of that people look at things and they say, well, I could do a better movie than that. I could do a better book than that. I could do a better whatever. You know how David Cronenberg decided to be a film director? What? Huh? He went to see Ivan Reitman's film Cannibal Girls. Okay. Yeah. And said to his friend, man, that is a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. I can do better than that. Yeah. So and proceeded can. to prove him right. Yeah. Some people do. Some people, unfortunately, don't. Yeah. <laughs> that one, Wild Palms, that was one that really... When I read the interview with Jim Belushi, I said, somebody had the guts to... Of course, this was 10 years after the damn thing yeah. was made. But he said, yeah, he said, nobody working on that production understood what we were doing. Quote from Jim Belushi. It's very tough, very challenging. A lot of viewers probably won't dig it. I shot the show for 12 weeks, looped it, watched it, and there are still things I'm not catching. <laughs> I love this. Robert Belushi. For me, the piece is reminiscent of Elizabethan Blood and Thunder plays like the Duchess of Malfi, or a Greek play like Medea. Plays where you're dealing with incest and treachery and tearing somebody's eyes out. Well, you got more out of it than we did. In other words, I don't know yeah. what the hell it does either. But Actually, it's probably Robert Lush just says, I wish I was in a movie version of Medea as he's on the set. Anytime you're stuck in something and you don't understand what the hell is you doing, you make a reference to something classical. That makes you look intelligent. And then that puts the other person off because, see, how many of us have read Medea? Yeah. So we're not going to... And I'm not talking about Tyler Perry yeah. character, folks. <laughs> <clears throat> so who... <laughs> <laughs> now I've got an image of Tyler Perry in drag killing her husband. Oh, God. Well, she did. Have you ever seen Medea kills her husband? No, I've never seen Medea kills her husband. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking, of, I'm going to burn your children alive. Ain't that sweet? But when you mention some classical like Medea, nobody will challenge you on it because, let's be honest, mm -hmm. how many people have read Medea? Yeah. Very few. So when you say, oh, yeah, well, it's it's in that level of Medea mm -hmm. or of Rasabooman Snickershit yeah. or something like that, yes. people say, oh, shit, well, I don't know anything about that. Well, let's go on to the next question. What did you have for dinner last night? Let's get out of this room real quick. So now that we have finished with the top yes. foolery, so out of all the Catherine Bigelow movies, first of all, how many Catherine Bigelow movies have you seen yourself? You've seen them all, right? I've seen pretty much all of them <coughs> except for The Weight of Water and okay, I K-19. Haven't, I haven't seen that. I haven't K seen K-19 and I haven't mm -hmm. seen Point Break. But out of the ones you have seen, well, I pretty much know your favorite near Oh uh, Well, yeah, of course, yes. That's still one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Wonderful reinvention of the vampire film. Mm-hmm. Really just beautiful to look at. Admittedly, the last five minutes of the film, it falls apart. Wait a minute, we need to get a happy ending. Mm -hmm. The whole bullcrap about, oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they kind of change him back yeah. to human and the girl with the transfusion. Of, yeah, yeah. Plus, Tim Thomerson versus Lance Hendrickson, plus Bill Paxton playing one of the most kick-ass vampires you'll ever meet. One of the greatest lines Lance Hendrickson ever utters, which is a middle set piece with mm. the, the bar, and the bartender goes, what do you people want? Lance Hendrickson goes, just a few minutes of your time. Yeah, that's all. About <laughs> the same duration as the rest of your life. <laughs> you can tell he's having just such a oh, yeah. time playing that part. It's a reinvention of the whole vampire thing without violating anything that we found out about vampires. Yeah. And there's one thing that people don't seem to realize. That there are different types of vampires. There's many different types yeah. of vampires as there are different types of any other type of species in mm -hmm. the world, including human beings and snakes. But this is a type, we may not have seen it before, but... They're presented in such a way that we buy it. Maybe they're not the sleeping in the coffin type, Plus also, but, but they are vampires. Yeah. Plus also Jenny Wright. Ooh. One of those probably now forgotten B-list, C-list starlets. Yeah. From the 80s, who mm -hmm. I think just disappeared off the face of the earth. So about 1902 or 93 was the last time I think anyone's ever heard of from her. Because mm -hmm. she was in that TV show about the newspaper some time ago. There were so many actors like that that had so much promise and they disappeared. Mm -hmm. You know who I saw recently on God Forbid of all the things? It was a sci-fi Saturday Night movie. Right. And I sat through that horrible, awful thing just because mm -hmm. I was so glad to see her working again. You remember my favorite Freddy Krueger movie, The Dream Warriors? Yeah. The girl, the drug addict. Oh, 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 I Jennifer know. Rubin? Yes, Jennifer Rubin. Yeah. She was in a sci-fi original. Still looked just as high. It wasn't that Transformers knockoff she did for a sci-fi, yeah. was it? Yeah. Oh, you saw that one? Oh, my God. Well, didn't she look great? She looked great, but it was an awful Oh, movie. that was a terrible movie. It was a rotten movie. But I just loved seeing her so much. I say, it's the type of woman I wish had had a bigger career. Mm -hmm. 
But we do have well, Dream Warriors. Yeah. Jenny Wright, the last time we saw her was 1998. She started doing a bunch of TV stuff. She was in the Capitol News. That's the thing I was thinking about in 1990. And after that, sad. But yeah, so direct people to Near Dark or direct people to Strange Days. But what happened to Jeanette Goldstein? She kind of like dropped off the radar after she had Aliens, she had mm-hmm. Near Dark. Here's my theory. Mm-hmm. This is what happened to her. She's really a time lord. She regenerated, <laughs> and she regenerated into Michelle Rodriguez. Okay, let's see. <laughs> I've now got Jennifer. She's still active as of 2008. Oh, good for her. Okay, Aliens, Near Dark, The Presidio. She and Catherine Bigelow played a cowgirl gang in the... Mar- you know Martini Ranch? Yeah, I've heard of it. Martini Ranch was the musical alter ego of Bill Paxton. Okay. They actually put out two albums. Okay. And their single for their first album, which was called Holy Cow! Exclamation point, was called Reach. It was like, kind of like a Mock West song. Mm-hmm. And Bigelow played the leader of a gang of cowgirls who assaulted Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Goldstein was part of that gang. Okay, cool. But look at Miracle Mile, Lethal Weapon 2, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, mm-hmm. Star Trek Generations, Fair Game, the first in a series of one starring roles for Cheryl Crawford, Titanic. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Clock Stoppers. Yeah, the last one we have is Autopsy. She's still active. Good, I'm glad to hear that. But it's one of these things like we were talking about when we talk about the spy movies. Where you have these actresses who do a couple of years as an actress and then decide, I'm done. Yeah. I made my money, I'm going to walk away. No, I don't blame them a bit. I would say, watch Strange Days. I would say, I like Blue Steel a lot. I like Blue Steel too. It's one of those ones that I think is kind of forgotten. I think it was a good movie for Jamie Lee Curtis because this was the period where she was doing stuff like what was the comedy she made with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy Trading Places. Trading Places, yeah. And she did A Fish Called Wanda and Mm -hmm. she was kind of like getting out of that Green Queen kind of thing. She was moving in a different direction. I actually like Blue Steel a little bit better than I like Point Break, even though Point Break, most people point to Point Break as one of her big movies. Right. I thought Point Break was kind of so-so. I think that Keanu, quite frankly, dragged it down a little bit. Although there was a lot of other, like, we talked about how Gary Busey is in it as his partner, and we have Swayze, and we have... And the great sequence in that one was the handheld chase scene. Right. Where Keanu Reeves is chasing Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers through the backyards of South Central L.A. But isn't it amazing that Captain Bigelow, unlike that, oh, I hate even saying this name, Paul Greengrass, can do a sequence yeah. like that with a handheld camera, but you can still see what's going yeah. on, whereas with him... Unlike with Greengrass, whose theory behind using handheld shaky cam was that he wanted to get you into the middle of the action. The whole point that Bigelow had in that chase scene mm-hmm. was to emphasize how disorienting it is. Right. And how... Everything seems to come at you at once right. when you're doing this. Mm-hmm. So we've gone from people use shaky cam to show how scary and unfamiliar something is right. to the theory being that we use shaky cam to get you right in there so you feel like you're a participant. If I want to be in the middle of the action, if I want to be a participant in the action, I will show up at a Ku Klux Klan right. cookout with a white woman on my arm. There you go. When I go see a movie, I want to see the movie. Right. I want to see who's doing what to whom and why. And I think that's also why we have handheld sequences in The Hurt Locker, too, is mm-hmm. not to get us into the action, mm-hmm. but to show just how scary and isolated Yeah. And out there you are. There are scenes like that in her locker. But again, she knows how to use this yeah. technique to advance the story and to make a point. Not just because I don't feel like blocking out the shot today. Yeah. Just take the camera and shoot whatever the hell you want to shoot. So those are the ones I would say, people. And then after that, I mean, The Loveless is kind of a hard road to slog. Even though I like it a lot. Since I can't all talk on the other two films, which I have not seen. She hasn't done a lot, but... Yeah, she hasn't done a lot, but what she her has done... Her batting percentage has been very yeah, high. Yeah, what she has done is good. I would agree with you that if you're going to start with Catherine Bigelow, it's essential that you see Near Dark. You probably have seen already, right. those of you listening to this, because it works 
as a horror movie. It works on so many levels as a Western, as you accurately point out. That, Strange Days, and The Hurt Locker. I would say watch those three, then whatever you want to watch after that, go for it. But those three, I would say, is essential to watch those. And because they're in three different genres, you get the spectrum of what Catherine Bigelow can do. That's a horror, a science fiction, and a war movie. So you get a good spectrum of the range that she has. And Warren knows what she's going to do after she's with the Bin Laden Project. That's the great thing, not knowing what's coming out of the box. Well, see, this is what I'm talking about. It's not like a director where you know, well, his last movie was science fiction. The one before that was science fiction. Right. And he's going to do another science fiction. Okay, well, let's go. That's what I like about Captain B. You don't know what she's going to do mm-hmm. next. It's just exciting to see, okay, fine, even a director. That's why I'm really interested in seeing this new Martin Scorsese movie. Because it's, it's not a crime movie. Yeah, because yeah, it's not a crime movie. We know Marty can do that. Mm-hmm. Mr. Scorsese can do that in his sleep. But, oh, he's doing a children's movie? Right. Wow. Now you've got my juices pumping. Right. That I want to see. Every third film of his seems to be a gangster movie. Just because he knows that's what people will go and see. And that gives him the justification that he can make two smaller movies, right? After. Yeah, I think he's working on something new now with his new avatar. But supposedly, I, I keep hearing this rumor that he's been holding out for a project. He wants to put Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio because he wants to put them together in a movie. His two know? muses. And another th- reason why we should point out that we have respect for Morris Scorsese. Wow. Bangiliana Douglas. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, another woman who doesn't fit society's narrow conventions My of God, is she hot. what beautiful is. But if Ileana Douglas walked up to me and said, come on, let's go. No, I'd be too busy walking up to her. I'd go. Oh, yeah, yeah. come on, let's go. Okay, let's take a look at this. Let's see if my theory is right. What's your theory? The theory I said is he throws out that gangster movie so he can do whatever he wants for a couple of years. Okay. Okay. Start with Mean Streets. Not going to do Boxcar Bertha since those are work for hires. Mm-hmm. Mean Streets. Which he did for Roger Corman. Yes. Mean Streets. Then after that comes Alice doesn't live here anymore and Taxi Driver and New York, New York. Next thing. Raging Bull. What follows after Raging Bull? King of Comedy. After Hours. The Color of Money. Mm. Which I think it was like a package deal. Yeah, it was, yeah. Last Temptation of Christ. Then we get Goodfellas. Goodfellas nets us afterwards Cape Fear and Age of Innocence. So actually breaking it down like this, his output of crime movies is actually very small. Yeah. Casino. Which is the next crime movie. Otherwise it was Goodfellas Part (laughs) 2. And what do we get after that? Kundun and Bringing Out the Dead. Gangs of New York, which is Goodfellas the early years. (laughs) And what do we get after that? The Aviator. The Aviator, a biopic. The Departed. The Departed. And what do we get after The Departed? Shutter Island and Yugo. So which makes me think that after Yugo... Another gangster movie. Now, looking at that, and it's interesting because when people think of Martin Scorsese, they actually think of gangster movies right. first. But after you laying it out like that, his output of gangster movies isn't yeah. that big. I think it's just like he puts out one in evenly spaced intervals so that he can be justified being left alone. Because usually, what happens after a gangster movie? The next one is really idiosyncratic. Because he's got the period piece, the age yeah. of innocence. You know something that's very You know, I mean, After Hours. After Hours, yeah. yeah. Bringing Out the Dead, yeah. A lot of just very curious films. Yeah. Very interesting. Have we done a great, great man on Martin Scorsese? We have not done it yet, but I'm sure we will. We gotta put that there. I'm sure we will. Well, let's see you go first, and then after we see you go. Right. We can do that. So, So, as far as Catherine Bigelow goes, probably the sexiest member of the Great Great Men Hall. Oh, I don't know. Matter of fact, this is the only person that we've got that could go into two categories. The Great Great Men and the Hottie Hall Hall of Fame. Fame. First inductee that goes into two different categories. Congratulations, Catherine. Catherine. You go, girl. And at 59 years old, no less. You go, girl. Catherine Bingo. I can't wait to see what because it is going to be something as different from these last two films as K-19 was from The Hurt Locker and Mm -hmm. like such so to sum up go watch some Catherine Bigelow movies because she's really really neat her movies and I can tell you this from my experience trying to find them are available on Netflix but DVD only if you're like my cheap ass and all you have is streaming you're shit out of luck but if you do have the streaming and the DVD please by all means Put that on your instant queue and check out her movies. Yes. And we should mention, by the way, so she has acted in at least one movie. Okay. She acted in Lizzie Borden's Morning Flames. Never so. heard of it. 
Lizzie Borden was an art house filmmaker from the 80s, very feminist. She plays the editor of a feminist newspaper. I guess it's time for the administrative. Yeah. Whether you like us, whether you hate us, whether you want to say that The Lost Boys is the greatest vampire movie ever made and you're an idiot for thinking otherwise. And if you think that The Lost Boys is the greatest vampire movie ever made, you got no business listening to this podcast. <laughs> Go away. Please. Go. Please. There's the door. Go. There's a number of ways you can reach us. You can send us an email at betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. You can join our message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. We are looking for new members to bring some life to the places and sleep in a bit. And if you don't join, you get to miss out on such features as Eddie Love's Saturday Matinee, which is worth the price of non-emission. We don't charge people for it, so. But he writes wonderfully amazing, comprehensive movie reviews, and he mm-hmm. is well worth reading. This is a guy that, matter of fact, I told Oh, it's up! What's up? His new one is up. And what's His that? His new one is up. It's actually a more recent film than usual. What? He's talking about the two Mezrine films. Oh, okay. Starring Vincent Cassell, who is another guy that we can put in along with Brett Ratner. And mm. Jimmy Kimmel has... <laughs> who do you, you got it, Guys, you got to give respect to because... Who do you nail? He's not just nailed them. He's married to Monica Bellucci. Oh, well, shit. He goes to the head of the and line. This guy, <laughs> this guy looks like a fucking water jug. Yeah, he goes to the head of the line. God, his ears are so big, you figure if there was a big wrong way, he'd be doing Dumbo. Monica Bellucci? Yep. Anytime I see a pairing like that, I go back to, of all things, an animated movie. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Where, when Mm -hmm. Jessica Rabbit is asked, why in the world did you marry Roger Rabbit? She says, quite simply, he makes me laugh. Yeah. Sometimes that's all it takes. You got a sense of humor, a beautiful woman will follow you anywhere. No beautiful woman follow me anywhere. That's because you got no sense of humor. But I do Uh, have a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I rest my case, Tom. I can't believe you walked into that one. I cannot believe you let yourself open for that. You know me, Tom. I'm like an abused housewife. I keep walking into doors. Tom, why yeah. would you leave yourself open okay. for, like that with me around? I'm like Mouse in A Devil with a Blue Dress. Yes. If you didn't want him killed, you shouldn't have left him with me. Okay. <laughs> you can join our Facebook page. We go to Facebook, type it in Better in the Dark, and just taking a seat. Because that's actually a pretty active place right now. we got a lot of people hosting a lot of stuff every day. In the words of the song, that joint is jumping. Derek and I have our own Facebook pages you can follow. We use our own names. You don't have to try and guess. Tom has a blog, Damn Your Eyes, Damn Your Ears, 10 Statements About, where he reviews a movie in a quite unique fashion. He makes 10 salient, important and perceptive statements about the movie. No more, no less. Tom sums well, no, up the Sometimes I've gone to 11. Yeah. Just in, like in Spinal Tap. In extraordinary cases, you have gone yeah. to 11. But if you want a concise, clear review of a movie, and it's not going to take a lot of time, that's where you go. And you can also mosey down to the Ferguson Theater, where Derek has his own movie reviews. That are a you, little bit more long-winded. Yeah, but, <laughs> well, they're more conventional. Well, yeah, yeah, you know me. I'm a long-winded son of a bitch. Like, I just did one of a favorite movie that a lot of people... I know you like to right. A lot of people have it. I've got emails from people mm-hmm. telling me, Oh, thank you. I never even knew this was out there. Boy and his dog. Yes. Don Johnson. Yeah. Believe that. it or not, folks, Don Johnson did make a good movie once. <laughs> Back before he decided to move on the power of his own ego. Once again, I guess another person we got to give credit... Was that during the time he was married to Melanie Griffith? Yeah. What's the person you gotta give credit to? Gotta give him credit for gotta give these guys credit for this. Sorry. Nailed Melanie Griffith without being famous, Don. Congratulations. That was back when Melanie Griffith was hot. She has not aged well, no. I'm sorry to say. And she lost that voice of hers. Yeah, that's no good. No, not good at all. What else do we have? Oh, pulpworkspress.com. Mm-hmm. Where, among other things, you can buy the recently released Four Bullets for Dylan. Yay! Four stories about Derek's great globetrotting adventurer. It is available not only in paperback with $9.99 from Amazon.com, but it is also available for your Kindle from Amazon for only a buck ninety-nine. Whoa. And if you go to Smashwords, you not only can get the Legend of the Golden Belt as an ebook for a buck ninety nine, you can get the first Dylan book of voice uh the, the voice voted 
absolutely free as ebook. What a bargain for your Kindle or your Nook, or if you just want it as a PDF, to read, PDF to read on your computer. Absolutely, totally free. A bargain for me. My. <laughs> <laughs> If you don't know where that came from, we're not going to tell you. I don't know where you got that from. Hey, boy. <laughs> I haven't heard that in so long, man. Thank you. <laughs> no, we're not going to tell you. You can also buy still the first two volumes of How the West Was Weird. And we can kind of, sort of, not quite really wink, wink, confirm that there is going to be a third volume. Well, as I said in the episode right. that we recorded previous to this one, I will tell you this much. Russ Anderson, I emailed him and asked him, should I be writing a new Sebastian? Yeah. Is there going to be a How the West Was Weird 3? All he said to me was, start writing. So, take okay. that as you will, folks. My okay. only question is, which story am I going to want to do? Since I have partials. Listen, of- nobody want to hear you, egomaniac. We're talking about me now. <laughs> All right, <laughs> he's hanging his head like I just kicked him in the nuts, folks. <laughs> no, but you've got Don Quavo. You can write another uh, Don yeah, Quavo. There's, there's a Don Quavo. Everybody like that. There's a character. Don Quavo story. There's yeah. a story about a character I know you love from the long lost lamented Onyx Revolver. Ah, uh, yes. El Vengador del Sangre. Yeah. And I have an idea for another Thunder Rider story. Okay, for those of you who have heard us mention Tom's Onyx Revolver story before, if you go to my other blog, which is Blood and Ink, no, you don't go to there. You go to the Dylan blog. Go there and go to the links page. And you go down, you'll see that there's a link to Frontier Presents Archives. Uh, I found everything that we did back then, mm -hmm. including Onyx Revolver. It's up there. So if you guys want to read it, that's what you do. Onyx Revolver, my attempt to do, as I like to put it, a manga in prose form. Yeah. As a matter of fact, make sure you put that up on the Better in the Dark Facebook page so that people can find it. Let them know if anybody's interested. And that's a blast from the past, Mm -hmm. if you guys are interested, because every once in a while I do get people that say you mentioned this story or you mentioned right. that story where can I find it at? And I tell them well go to my Dylan blog and go to okay. Frontier Publishing Presents Archive and there it is and you can find it there. Okay. All that good stuff. Oh here we um, go. Also would be remiss if I did not mention How the West Was Weird Campfire Tales. Yes which is uh, available as a ebook. As an ebook now for your Kindle or your Nook. 99 cents, people, mm-hmm. to get stories from myself, Russ Anderson, Joshua Reynolds, and Joel Jenkins. Mm-hmm. Weird Western stories full of fun, action, adventure, excitement, supernatural hijinks, and all that good stuff that goes along with it. So, yeah, I mean, 99 cents, how can you say no? I couldn't say no. Right. And we should also mention, we've added another publishing house you might want to check out. Airship 27. Headed by our good friend who you heard on episode 99, Ron Fortier. The captain of Airship 27. Salute! Derek has some stuff that has just come out. Yep, I have a story in Mystery Men and Women, Volume 2, A Man Called Mongrel. I also have a story in Tales of the Hanging Monkey, which will be coming out next year. Well, yeah, next year, because Airship 27. They put out 10 titles this year, and that's it for this year. Right. So it should be coming out next year. The interior illustrations is being done for that volume, and I have a story mm-hmm. in there. And Tom has a super secret project that he's working on that we cannot which disclose. Is, which was going to be very exciting. We cannot disclose details at this time. Yeah. Tom is still in the process of working on it, but I can say, because I'm in the know like that, yes. that this is something that you're going to want to read when it finally comes together, trust me. So I'm at the, the Dylan blog. I can't find the... No, link. my blog. Oh. You're at the Poker Press okay. blog. You don't have my blog bookmarked. I don't have a lot of things bookmarked that I should. Bet you got Kristen Bell. I, I bet you Christian got. Bell. I bet you got every Kristen Bell website bookmarked. You pervia. <laughs> I do not have every Kristen Bell. Liar. Do you see that picture? Liar. Black liar. That, that, that somebody posted of Kristen Bell in the Supergirl outfit. Very unflattering picture. If you're going to do Photoshop like that, have some pride in your work. Because first of all, it was so blurry and out of focus, you couldn't even tell that was supposed to be Kristen. Right. And it was kind of like mushed down. It's very... Very sloppy, shoddy work. But Kristen Bell as Supergirl, no, actually, I don't see her as Supergirl. Mm-hmm. As we've said in the past many times, we see her as Honey West. Yes, we do. What other superheroine could she play? Oh. She can play the superhero. Oh, 
<laughs> it's kind of hard to. There we go. All right, now go to the links page. Go to the links. I don't think the page okay. is completely loaded. Okay, now go down, and you're going to see Frontier Pub. What'd you do? All right, okay. Frontier Publishing Archive. Dun 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 I guess it's coming. Bah, see? Bingo. Okay. So I'm going to post that right now as we are recording okay. on our Better the Dark page. So yeah, something really exciting coming from Airship 27. And I guess we finally we should mention, as we always do, alteredvision.org, okay. where we muck around with the Avengers on a regular basis. Tom writes Avengers West Coast, and I write Avengers, and we're having a lot of fun writing fun stories about some of our favorite superheroes. Right now we're working on a crossover between the two teams that we call The Infected. Dun, dun, dun. And it's a lot of fun. And what is it about? Well, there are people. They're being infected. They're infected. They're infected. Truth in advertising. Right. We believe in that around here. Tommy Hancock would string me up by the yabos if I did not mention Prose Press and the upcoming Pope Obscura mm-hmm. project that he's got going on. What is Pope Obscura? Well, it's a little bit too obscure for me to mention right <laughs> now. Know. Once again, if you go to the Better in the Dark Facebook page, you will find a link that will take you to Prose Press and where that will all be explained. But by all means, in the coming year, and matter of fact, you'll be hearing this will be in the new year. Yes, we this will yes. be in the new year. So in this new year, you want to keep your eye on Pope Press. Airship 27 and Prose Press. My hope is that this is going to be episode 122. No, no, 122 is going to be the one we did with Joel. Oh, okay. 121 is the girl who... 122 is going to be Joel and us doing the director's court. As oh, makes okay. this 123. Oh, okay. And there it is. There revolver. Told you. Pretty with a pistol. Mm-hmm. I just always love that cover. See what I do for you? And it's all up there. All, all trying to extant chapters. All 22 chapters up there, yeah. Mm-hmm. little blast from the past for you guys. The Filipino hitman. I forgot the, the Filipino hitman. So you can see what we were doing years and years ago. I would hate to tell you folks how old that stuff is. Yeah. <laughs> so, until next time, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. When you're viewing a special video of somebody's memories of being a bomb squad lieutenant in a great war fought by cowboy vampires and serial killing stockbrokers, go see, see that, that movie. movie. Good night. Good night, and congratulations to Catherine Bigelow, a great, great woman. Call me. <laughs> something I'm meaning to ask you. Yeah, what might that be? How old are you? Let's put it this way, I fought for the South. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas E. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Scott and Chris of Two True Freaks, Mike and Paul of Chin Stroker vs. Punter, Mr. Suave of the Modcast, Eric Froman, of course, all the lovely members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark has never experienced its own death from the viewpoint of its killer, but it imagines it must be like when it had that marathon of Dean Martin Matt Hell movies the other night. Please send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.betterinthedarksite.com. And don't forget to check out all the amazing music available at www.b-hyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a conspiracy production presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas E. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that it might not be a good idea to trust Jeremy Renner when it comes to defusing a bomb. I heard him say You walk away? I walk away! You walk away? I walk away! I walk away! I walk away!